Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. My name is Malcolm Wolf. I'm president and CEO of the National Hydropower Association uh, based here in, in Washington, D.C., uh, a lawyer by training. I've been working on the clean energy space for my career of almost 30 years in and out of, of government, uh, both at the federal level and at the state level. Explain succinctly what hydropower is from a first principles perspective. The Department of Energy has actually called uh, hydropower the nation's first renewable energy resource. It was established in the late 1800s, essentially generating electricity by, by having water push a turbine as the water goes through the hydropower facility and spinning the turbine is what creates the electricity. So it's a, a way to uh, generate carbon-free electricity without burning anything so there's no emissions. And why would hydropower help to solve climate change? Yeah, hydropower is really a, a unique resource in this area because it is a 19th century technology that turns out is an amazing resource for the 21st century. There's um, 80 gigawatts of hydropower currently on the grid. It's mostly uh, reservoir hydropower, but some of it is also run of the river hydropower. Um, there's also another 20 three gigawatts of so-called pump storage, which we can talk about. This is using water, again, running water through a turbine to generate electricity, uh, particularly when the grid needs it. And then you can pump that water back uphill and run it through that turbine as many times as you want, just kind of pumping power between two reservoirs to generate power when you need it. And together between the 80 gigawatts of hydropower and 23 gigawatts of pump storage, there's over 100 gigawatts of carbon-free, flexible power generation capacity. That is about 40% of the nation's renewable power. We provide power to about 30 million American homes and families, uh, homes and businesses every day. So it's, it's, a, major, it's a major energy resource. Um, in addition, beyond the fact that we're 40% of the nation's renewables right now, um, as we look to the grid being 100% clean energy, um, and having a uh, 100% carbon-free grid. Uh, wind and solar are fantastic resources. I spent most of my career advocating for them, but it's obvious that the sun goes down every night. The wind doesn't always blow, yet we still want to uh, stream Netflix and charge our cell phones even when uh, the renewable resources aren't available. So you somehow need to have 24-7 reliable electricity and the nature of electricity is that you can't store, you, at least historically, you haven't been able to store it cost effectively. So you've got to match supply and demand every second on the grid. So every time you flip a light switch on, then there needs to be a corresponding change in a power plant to, to generate that, that increased power. So we need a flexible resource because wind and solar are not dispatchable. They're available when the wind is there and when the, when the sun is shining. We need something that can balance out that grid. Uh, I'm a big fan of batteries. Batteries can go a long way. Uh, they become increasingly cost-effective for less than four hours. Uh, when you start talking about having power all night long, 
or for periods of time when the wind doesn't blow for two, three, four days in a row, uh, you're not going to be able to recharge those batteries. And so you need long duration storage in addition to battery storage to be able to have a reliable grid. So from my perspective, hydropower is an essential part of our clean energy future because we're already 100 gigawatts, 30 million Americans rely on this power, but even more so, we're not growing like wind and solar, but if you want to have a grid that has deep penetration of wind and solar, um, you're not going to be able to get there without the flexibility of dispatchable hydropower uh, to be able to keep the, the grid on. Maybe it's worth just spending a moment sharing an example. Um, I believe it was, now it was maybe two years ago that on a hot summer afternoon, uh, a nuclear power plant in New England tripped off. So suddenly 12,000 megawatts of generation disappeared at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. The lights in Boston barely flickered because there were some pump storage facilities, Northfield Mountain and, and uh, I think it's Bear Creek in, in New England were able to instantly start releasing power from their upper reservoir provide uh, power to the grid um, and replace that much generation at a moment's notice. It wasn't scheduled, but that flexibility to provide that kind of power when needed is already helping to keep the lights on. And as we go to deeper penetrations of wind and solar and even offshore wind, you're going to need that, that balancing factor. Could you explain how it wouldn't solve climate change or where hydropower falls short? Let me address actually one issue. You may find some websites talking about methane production from hydropower. Uh, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, so we need to be taking it very, very seriously. But I urge folks to, to keep this in mind if they, uh, if they find those websites. Uh, methane is produced by reservoirs. It's also produced by every other water body in the world. So whether that's a lake or a stream or wetland, decaying matter can produce methane. Uh, there's nothing about running water through a turbine that releases any methane. It's simply the fact that there are reservoirs. So when talking about potential methane emissions from reservoirs, it's a real issue, but it's not a hydropower issue. It's an issue with water bodies. It is a real issue where elsewhere in the world where they're still building new reservoirs. You need, if you were to build a modern state-of-the-art reservoir, you want to make sure you don't have the debris left underneath the reservoir that can then decay and release methane. Um, that happens in new reservoirs. If you leave that debris down there in the first several years, the organic material um, uh, breaks up and methane is released. Um, not the case in the United States. Our reservoirs were built generations ago. To the extent that that happened, it happened a long time ago. Um, and we're not building those new reservoirs. To the extent that we're building closed loop reservoirs off river, we line them. There's no organic material in there. They're kind of artificially created reservoirs that can then be, uh, can be managed. So, uh, the methane emission, um, is an issue, uh, but it's not really an issue for hydropower and it's not really an issue in the United States. So from my perspective, hydropower is a pretty cool resource to help us address climate change. Could you elaborate on who benefits and maybe who is harmed by hydropower as a solution? There was absolutely hydropower facilities built in areas 100 years ago, maybe even 75 years ago, where uh, they probably shouldn't have been built. And so that is a big area where hydropower can do harm, which is in part, well, probably why we're not building new reservoirs. Today. 
Um, hydropower is an amazing resource, but the era of building large new reservoirs ended 50 plus years ago. Nobody, you know, with the, with the birth of the environmental movement, there's a great deal of more environmental consciousness. We want to preserve natural resources, cultural resources. Um, so we're really talking about using the existing infrastructure that we have, not building new reservoirs in, in North America, or at least in the United States. So one of the amazing statistics that I was not aware of till I was recruited for this position was that America has 90,000 dams in this country of a, of a certain size, and only 3% of them are used to produce power. So I'll say that again, 97% of America's dams are not used to produce power. They're used for flood control, for irrigation, for recreation, for water storage. Very rarely were any of these dams built for power production. Uh, there are a few cases, the Hoover Dam being, being a notable example, but in most cases they were built for something else and they added power production as a way to offset the costs. So what that means is there's a huge opportunity to, without building any new reservoirs to use that existing 97% for additional carbon-free flexible generation. There's also an opportunity to recognize that a lot of those 90,000 dams were built for the, uh, the sawmill 100 years ago that went out of business 50 years ago. And they closed down the sawmill, they never took out the dam. So there's an opportunity to remove thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dams, restore healthy rivers, restore wild flow without impacting hydropower generation because those were never power dams to begin with. So one of the exciting things that I've been uh, privileged to work with is uh, a new collaboration between industry and the environmental and climate activists and tribal tribal nations that have historically been at odds with each other, literally for generations, that have now come together and recognized, hey, there's a whole lot of areas where we can collaborate. Climate change is uh, the biggest driver. We recognize that climate change is the biggest threat to uh, species and a healthy river system and a healthy world. So uh, maximizing the power generation of hydropower, both for its generation and for its ability to balance the grid, is huge. But we've also recognized that there's opportunities to collaborate on other issues like dam removal. Historically, my industry doesn't like talking about dam removal because we think of it as a threat to power production. But we've now started kind of reframing the conversation to focus on not the 2,500 power dams, but the 90,000 dams in America and realize that uh, removal of those dams can serve environmental purposes. Sometimes it can create more water flow to, to the power production. So there's a great example in, uh, in New England, uh, in Maine with the Penobscot, where the local community, this was about a decade ago, was able to come together and agree to remove two dams on the Penobscot River and increase power production on a third. So the net result was about the same level of power production by removing two power dams, but replacing that generation at the third, all of that area upstream was able to be restored to wild flow and there was more flow for the third generator. So it was a, a, a net even for power production, but a net win for the environment. And we're now working with groups as diverse as American Rivers and Union of Concerned Scientists and World Wildlife Foundation and American Whitewater 
and, and tribal groups like the Skagit, the Upper Skagit, uh, and the Skahobish, and a number of groups that are coming together to recognize that uh, while we may not agree on, on every facility, that there's a whole lot of areas where we can collaborate together. So the folks who benefit are really you know, everybody because of climate change helps bring our power down. The area of this country where we have the most hydropower is the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it has over 60% of the Pacific Northwest gets its power from hydropower, and it also has the lowest energy costs in the nation. So uh, consumers uh, absolutely benefit from the low from the low energy prices. In terms of, I would say, the other groups that benefit are the environmental and climate communities to the extent that we are able to partner and focus on climate-free generation where it makes sense and focus on dam removal where it doesn't. As part of this uncommon dialogue process that I've alluded to, facilitated by Dan Riker of Stanford University, we've come up with what we're, what we're referring to as the three R's, that we want to retrofit existing infrastructure for, for carbon-free generation where possible. We want to rehabilitate them because dam safety is a problem. Um, often or sometimes these dams get abandoned and then that can create uh, a threat to, to downstream communities. And then finally, we're, we're want to talk about removal of non-power dams where the owner finds that they're no longer serving a useful purpose and let's get rid of them. So I think there's lots of opportunities to, to collaborate. There's also the opportunity for new growth in the area. Department of Energy did a study a few years ago finding there was the potential for 50 gigawatts of new hydropower and pump storage. Most of that was using either existing infrastructure or this pump storage technology where you can literally just pump water from two reservoirs when needed. And the beauty of that is that you can do it in so-called closed loop. So it's off river. So you're no longer doing it in an area where you may be affecting the, the volume of water in the lower river as it goes through because you're pumping it up. Instead, you're creating two reservoirs that aren't connected to the river. So you can just pump them up when needed and release it when needed. Um, a lot of those existing pump storage facilities were built in the 50s when we were building nuclear power plants. And the thought then was that the nuclear power plant can't cycle on and off. Once you've got the nuclear reactor going, you've got to keep it going. So what happens at night? when the power plant's generating all this power that nobody needs, I know will pump it up the upper reservoir at night, create load for the nuclear power plant, and then release it during the day when everyone goes to work and need that generation. Well, fast forward 50 years, now in places like California, we've got so much solar production on the grid that we're curtailing solar 30% of the time. The solar panels on your building's roof may not actually be able to use their electricity because we've got too much electricity and not enough demand. So now those same pump storage facilities are being used to pump instead of at night, but pump during the day. Let us use our solar when we've got the production. And it's sunset when solar is no longer producing, but people are still using their electronics, release the power. That's part of the flexibility of of pump storage hydropower is we can adjust as the grid evolves. And if we do it off river, closed loop, there really isn't um, much of a downside. Okay. So you've talked about um, the three different R's and some of the uh, mechanics behind hydropower. What other innovation or policy needs to be put in place for this to work as an effective solution? 
hydropower is an amazing solution, but it, it's viewed as as a 19th century technology. And so it's not as, it's not as sexy as wind, solar, or batteries. Uh, uh, Tesla, Elon Musk had not announced a cool new uh, hydropower thing to get people excited. Oh, that's a problem. We're kind of out of people's consciousness, even though wind and solar rely on the ability of pump storage to balance it and reservoir hydropower. Uh, right now, we also use natural gas to balance wind and solar. If we ever want to get past the natural gas to have a carbon-free grid, you've got to have more of that long-duration energy storage. The one challenge we have right now is that the uh, regulatory framework doesn't recognize the flexibility that hydropower provides. Let me, let me restate that. The, the folks who are responsible for managing the grid absolutely recognize and value the flexibility of hydropower. They use it every day. They just don't pay for that flexibility. Mm. Um, one example, um, in um, last, last August, middle of the epic heat wave in California, record energy consumption, the California grid operators in the middle of the afternoon were curtailing 30% of the solar because they had too much solar. At the same time, they were racing to the governor's office because they knew they didn't have enough juice to keep the lights on when the sun set. Mm. So hydropower saved its water during the day released its water at night, both in California and in the Pacific Northwest. They increased their generation in that evening peak as the solar was setting three times more generation than they usually do at that hour to help keep the lights on. That combined with an urgent text to every citizen in California saying, turn off your power, it's hard to keep the lights on, helped avoid a massive outage. Those kind of examples happen almost every month where the flexibility of hydropower is able to keep the lights on. But that flexibility, you get paid for producing a kilowatt of power, but you don't get paid producing it when the grid needed it. You don't get that surcharge for that flexibility. The company would have earned um, almost as much. There's a slight um, increased price for when the power is produced, but it's not nearly the price signal that's needed. The power plant could have generated that power at two o'clock or at seven o'clock. The fact that it was 10 times more valuable to the grid at seven o'clock was not something that it got adequately paid for. So that is one barrier. We take for granted that we've got lots of spinning reserves, lots of this power. We don't need to pay for the flexibility. As we emerged, as we evolved to a grid increasingly powered by variable renewables, we're not going to have that same flexibility, but the market signals aren't there yet. And this is an industry that builds billion dollar devices that then last forever. So market signals 10, 20, 30 years out are what they need to have those investments. Yeah. We've got a wave of hydropower facilities that are up for relicensing. Um, half of the non-federal fleet is up for relicensing by 2035. What that means is that those companies are making these decisions today because relicensing a hydropower plant takes longer than relicensing a nuclear plant. It, for a nuclear plant, you've got the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, one agency. They go through a, a process four or five years. They get that plant done. A hydropower plant has a federal license from FERC, has federal licenses from Fish and Wildlife and other environmental groups, has state licenses. Often, these are on water bodies. There's multiple states involved because they share the river. So there can be dozens, there are typically dozens and dozens of different agencies that have to give permits. And the average license takes eight years for a relicensing an existing facility. 
Um, it often takes over a decade and some have taken over 15 years or longer. So decisions in whether to relicense these facilities are happening now. And unfortunately, there's an increase in trend of license surrenders. We've had 65 facilities surrender their license since 2010. That rate is increasing. Thus far, it's been very small facilities, so it hasn't had a huge impact on grid reliability. But with half of the federal fleet up for relicensing by 2035, we're concerned about a wave of license surrenders. So we've got to improve the licensing process. And working together with tribal groups and with river groups, we've actually put together a license reform package uh, that both industry and the environmental community and the tribal community all testified in support of last Congress. Politics, the way we didn't get that bill over the finish line last year, hopefully we'll be able to enact something this year. What are the best resources to learn about hydropower in relation to climate change? I would definitely check out NHA's webpage, hydro.org. Huge amount of, of resources out there as well. In terms of other resources, there's no shortage of great books. Hydropower has a, a rich history of, of what happened to get these, these billion dollar facilities built. Amazing engineering. Right now, you're speaking to passionate students who want to actually solve problems like these. What top three skills should they study so that they actually have the ability to do so? I mean, the engineering of these devices is amazing. The, other than as a tourist at the Hoover Dam, when I took this job, I visited a facility and they had three turbine bays. And normally these bays are deep in the water, but they happen to be rehabilitating one of the turbines. And I looked at it and it was, this, it's massive. It's larger than, than a garage. It's all one piece of machinery. I don't know that you could cast it, something that big in this country anymore. Um, amazing piece of machinery. And I, I looked at it and said, wow, this is incredible. I wonder what the old one looked like. Because I know they had pulled out a hundred year old one and we're replacing it. And they thought, no, 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 this is the hundred year old one. The replacement hasn't come in yet. It looked shiny. It was, you know, spotless because it just had water running through it for a hundred years. It, to me, to the untrained eye, uh, it didn't seem to have, have wear and tear. So the engineering marvel, we think of these things as forever assets. They can, if you take care of them, they literally can run for, for a hundred years and keep producing power. So there's certainly a huge need for, for the engineers. Um, NHA, uh, along with some other groups do provide scholarships, fellowships for engineer, for people who are interested in getting involved in, in hydropower, wind and solar, also amazing technologies, but don't forget about us. We're, we're somewhat of the forgotten giant. And so there's a huge need, not only for engineers, but for the technical trades. There are people who get very well paid to scuba dive and kind of dive uh, under the water to check out and do inspections of these facilities. There's, there, there's all the trades that keep this stuff keep the stuff going. There's a whole business side of making sure that you're getting the right, maximizing the dollar value for what the grid needs. Um, so energy trading and the finance side, it really is uh, kind of not to bolt. Um, if you're interested in this stuff, you can, you can apply your skills to it. Any final recommendations for the audience? I should also mention that there's an array of really cool emerging marine energy technologies that are coming out whether it's wave technology or tidal technology or current, just using the current in a technology in any river. There are some amazingly innovative companies, Natel Energy, Emergy, 
there's, there's a fun technology dealing with fish passage. We obviously want to make sure that the fish are able to get upstream past the dams. There's historic fish ladders, which mimic the natural conditions. But there's now a company called Woot that has invented what they call the fish cannon. They, they, the fish get kind of put in, can kind of swim into a tube, and the tube takes them over and kind of dumps them over the dam. Um, and uh, so look for Woosh, Woosh Fish Cannon uh, on YouTube, and you'll see some amazing pictures. And they've got, you know, 99.9 something percent success rate. So there really are a lot of cool innovations coming on in the space. Let's practice our skills. Choose a major hydropower project from your region or globally. Research its planning, environmental impact assessments, and controversies. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University.